All right, Colossians chapter 2. Starting in verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today uh, with grateful hearts for what you've done for us in salvation through your son Jesus. Lord, we come humbly before you because you've been so gracious to give us so much. Lord, I ask you to continue to work in our lives, continue to wipe away um, all pride, continue to root out sin, continue to sanctify us more and more uh, by your spirit. And God, we want to be a people that are truly um, acting like your children, not just saying we're your children, but acting like your children. Lord, I pray today that um, you would help us to see clearly what your word has to say to us. Help us to understand it rightly and then to walk it out. We thank you that we are privileged to gather with brothers and sisters, those who claim your name um, and claim it unabashedly. May we, Lord, not be ashamed of the gospel. May we preach the gospel. I pray, Lord, as we're going through uh, evangelism training in our life groups, that we would put that into practice, that you would make us bold and fearless wipe away any fear of man, help us to open our mouths, help us to look for those opportunities and take them when they come. Father, we want to be um, doers of the word, not just hearers. Be with us now. We thank you for the privilege of being in your presence. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are picking it up in verse 16, and I want you to notice the very first word, in verse 16, which is, uh, in most versions, um, is therefore. Uh, King James, it, 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 it appears a couple words later, uh, and then one version doesn't have it. But it is there in the Greek, and what it's signifying is a transition and saying, basically, therefore. What does therefore mean? Well, in light of everything I've previously just said in the previous section, therefore, let's make some observations and conclusions. So, what is the therefore, therefore? <laughs> um, the point is, the believer's life is centered only on Christ. Okay, so everything he said to this point, the believer's life is centered on Christ. Uh, that is really the main point of the verses 6 through 15. So then we're getting to this um, part, and he's saying, because 
the believer's life is centered only on Christ. And because Christian living and how we walk and everything we do is centered only on Christ, the other things mentioned here are, one, a distraction from your walk with the Lord, and two, they're a detraction from your walk with the Lord. So it, it, in other words, it's meaningless and useless and only serves to hurt your walk with Christ. It does not aid it. It does not enhance it. So we're going to talk today a little bit about distractions to our faith and our walk with the Lord. And we're going to talk a little bit about detractions, distractions and detractions. Now, he starts out here in verse 16 with the command, let no one pass judgment on you. It's actually a command in the Greek. It's the second command that we're given in Colossians. The first command is back in, in verse 8 of chapter 2, where he says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Well, here's the second command in Colossians. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. Why? Why, don't, why isn't the judgment going to be passable? Well, that's what we're going to find out. But it's because you're, you're, everything that you are and everything that you have is centered on Christ. Now, this whole section kind of deals with, I'd say, three main areas of distractions and detractions. One of them would be legalism, just additional things that um, even today people add that we have to do, hoops we have to jump through in order to be right with God. Um, there's also asceticism, which is a severe self-discipline, a strict avoidance of any self-indulgence, and then there's a mysticism, which would involve odd or unusual forms of communion with God. He mentions here angel worship. So those are the, kind of the three categories. But let's look at some of the specific words that he uses in Colossians, starting in verse 16. Notice what he says, Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. These, the food and drink are talking about the Old Testament laws concerning how people can become clean or unclean. Things that are required for temple worship and temple sacrifice. Think about one of the, the things that Paul addresses, and actually a couple of different letters, including this one here, is what am I able to eat or drink when it comes to my Christian faith? When it comes to my walk with Jesus. So, for example, keep your place here because we're going to come back to it, but look at Romans chapter 14. Let's start Romans 14, verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment. Oh, look at that. Isn't that what we just read, essentially? Right? Colossians 2. Let no one pass judgment. Well, he's saying it here, but now he's actually applying it to one another. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. So they were doing it, and he's calling them to stop doing it. But rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. And then notice what he says. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. So again, he's dealing with the issue, specifically here, of food. What am I able to eat? First Corinthians talks about a similar thing, but here he goes on. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, 
do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. So he's, he's, he's addressing the situation, especially for the Jewish Christians, but as the uh, Gentiles were reading their Old Testament and having questions about it, they're like, well, uh, what, what is acceptable? And what is he saying? Everything is clean. Okay? But if it's going to cause your brother to stumble, then, then for the sake of your brother, do not participate that in his presence. Consider others better, you know, interests uh, above your own. Philippians 2, it's kind of that principle. What does he say? Look at 1 Corinthians 8. He says something similar. This whole section is, is dealing with food, and it's dealing with food offered to idols. Verse 1, chapter 8, 1 Corinthians. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and from whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. And then notice what he says here. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Now, I mean, today, we don't really give too much thought to the food laws in the Old Testament. And we just eat whatever we want. Right? I mean, nothing's off the menu for Americans. If you want it, you can eat it. So it's really not that much of a struggle um, for believers when, when they get saved. We're not struggling with, oh, can I eat shrimp or not? We don't have that struggle. But that was one of the early questions and struggles that kind of crept into the church. Even in, at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, they addressed that. So what can we eat and what food should we avoid? So some of that is dealing with the Old Testament laws regarding sacrifice. Then he goes on and mentions three other things. Festivals, new moons, and Sabbath. Listen, all of these describe aspects of the temple laws. What were these temple laws now? Outdated. The temple laws were outdated. Why don't we follow these? Because all of the temple laws pointed to Christ. That's what they were set up for. All the sacrifices, you can go through it. They're all pointing to Christ. All the festivals pointing to Christ. The Sabbaths pointing to Christ. The new moons pointing to Christ. The calendar pointing to Christ. Christ. 
So that's why he says in the very next verse, if you look back in Colossians, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Well, if you have the substance, then you don't need the shadow. That's really what his point is. We have outdated temple laws. The feasts point to Jesus. Everything points to Jesus. Passover points to Jesus. So what we have are outdated temple laws. And listen, something greater than the the temple is here. Right? Doesn't Jesus himself say that? Look at Matthew chapter, chapter 12. Verse 1, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Who's he talking about? He's talking about himself. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Okay, They're concerned about the temple worship. That's what was creeping in to early Christianity. This concept and ideas of extra rules and regulations. The temple worship. Listen, those are outdated temple laws that are no longer needed or required because we have the true temple, Jesus. Okay, all those rules and regulations regarding the temple, they find their fulfillment in Christ. What did he say in John 2? Destroy this temple and what? I'll raise it again in three days. Was he, was he talking about the physical temple? No, John lets us know. He wasn't talking about the physical temple that was built. He's talking about his own body. Destroy this temple, I'll raise it up in three days. So everything regarding temple worship was fulfilled in Christ. It makes no sense, therefore, to command such things to observe. Temple worship was no longer needed. The ultimate sacrifice was made once for all. We don't have to keep sacrificing in the temple. Why? Because Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. The food, the drink, the libations, the turtle doves, the lamb, it's done. It's over with. It's no more. Those are shadows of the things to come. But we love our rituals. And we love our traditions, and we love routine, and we love requirements. And so it is easy to fall back into old habits and patterns because that's just what's easy to do. And it's easy to do those things because we think doing certain things can bring us closer to God. If you are a believer, you're as close to God as you can be. That's the truth. Next, next he says in verse... Um, Notice what he says in verse uh, 17 and 18. He says in verse 18, let no one disqualify you. So in verse 16, he's talking about 
passing judgment, and now he's talking about disqualification. Listen, the believer, when we're talking about judgment and disqualification, the believer has already been judged through identification with Christ's death and resurrection. Because Christ took our judgment, he was judged guilty. He was judged guilty so that we could be judged innocent. Therefore, the verse 16, let no one pass judgment on you. Why? You've been judged and you found innocent in God's sight because of what Christ did for you. Think about what was required for entrance into God's presence. Cleanliness, you know, you had to be pure. You had to be righteous. But the false teachers wanted you to jump through hoops. Listen, we have cleanliness, we have purity, we have righteousness in Christ. So we don't need these other things. They don't make us holy, they don't make us clean. If you have Christ, you have a holiness. It's a holiness that's, that's of yours or of Christ's. It's of Christ's, right? It's not, a, it's, an, it's not a righteousness of our own. I mean, that's what Paul's hammering at in Philippians chapter 3, right? It's not my righteousness, it's the righteousness of Christ. That's why, you know, when we get saved, yes, our sins are forgiven, but we also get the very righteousness of Christ given to us. Okay? The unholy made holy. We don't need a physical temple to enter anymore. We have the righteousness that comes from Christ wherever we're at. Does the sacrifice have to be made? Yes, but not yearly. We don't need the, 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 the yearly atonement that the Jews have. We have the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That cleanses us completely for all time. Completely cleansed. So we have a holiness and righteousness from Christ. Think about for a moment. The temple showed God's visible presence on earth. Well, who was Jesus? I mean, he's God. So you, so you have God's visible presence on earth. John, if you think even John 1 in, in verse 14, um, it says the word became flesh and what? Dwelt among us. You, you could translate that word, uh, he tabernacled among us. Uh, the, the, the words tying to the Greek Old Testament would be, would be the same. The idea meaning you got the tabernacle in the Old Testament that was set up. The tabernacle, once, they, once David builds, ends up uh, setting up the temple to be built with the, the plans, you get the temple. But the idea is, is now, now we have the new temple. And it's tabernacling with us. It's templing with us. So the cleanliness laws were to make a person clean for worshiping a holy God in the temple and to preserve the temple as a clean place. And what was, what was it teaching over and over again? God is holy. God is holy. But it was teaching a few other things. One, we are not. I mean, think of all the things you had to do, the washings, the sacrifices, just to come into the outer courts. Just to get, okay? I mean, who could enter the Holy of Holies? Just the high priest once a year. Think about that for a moment, brothers and sisters. Like, so holy was God that only once a year, and that by blood being spilt, could the high priest enter into God's holy presence. 
And yet, we, as believers, are blessed with God's presence everywhere we go. We don't, we don't have to go to a temple. We don't have to be some um, high priest from some lineage. That's why, look, I mean, just look at what it says in 1 Peter. First Peter chapter 2. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. So, so you have the priesthood. Not because you're some, some lineage of Aaron or Moses. No, you have a priesthood because you've been saved and bought by the precious blood of Jesus. You're a chosen race. Well, why? I mean, there's black, white, red. All sorts of races are saved. No, you're the chosen race of God. If you've been saved by God himself, you're part of his chosen. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So what was only reserved for one person once a year is now open to all believers. Think about that. You can come into the presence of God. It was walled off, literally. Blood had to be spilt. Well, guess what? It was walled off for thousands of years, and then the blood of Jesus was spilt. And then the temple, the, 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 the veil was torn, right? And what happens? We have access to God, everyone. Access to the Father. So it's teaching that God is holy, that we are not, and that there's a holiness that's required to be in God's presence. But, but if we have Christ, then we have the holiness of Christ. And then we can be in his presence. All right? We are in his presence. Holiness, here's the thing, doesn't come by accident. And you can't mix holiness and unholiness. Okay, if you have something holy and you add a little bit of unholiness, is it still holy? Well, no. No, unless you're Jesus, if you think about it. In the Old Testament, there's different things. Oh, if you touch a dead animal or you touch a dead person and you were clean, are you clean anymore? No. But then what does Jesus do? God himself comes and he's dwelling among us and then the leper comes and he touches the leper and what happens? Is Jesus unclean? No. What happens? The leper becomes clean. You see that? And then the woman with the issue of blood, right? You touch, if, 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 if he were to touch any person, any man in that situation, any woman, unclean. What happens? She touches Jesus, does he become unclean? No. She becomes clean. So, <clears throat> what we do is end up walking around in a defiled state, and all we can do is be defiled by other things, and then Christ comes along and he turns that completely upside down. And so the Holy One can make others holy. He can give us his righteousness. And so we see, we see examples of that in even his earthly ministry, making the lepers clean, taking the woman with the flow of blood and healing her and making her clean. Over and over again. What, I mean, that's what Jesus is doing. And then what does he do for us? He takes the unholy and makes us holy. It's, it's an amazing and beautiful picture that we get over and over again in the Gospels. 
Think about back to Gnosticism, which is hit on. It, it was, if, you, if you really think about it, 1 John, Colossians, uh, some of the other books, it was one of the, the, the major threats, uh, one of the earliest false teachings that threatened and came against Christianity and tried to creep. If it couldn't come and just destroy it, it just tried to kind of creep in with a syncretism of sorts. And so this Gnosticism, I mean, here we are 2,000 years later, and, and not much has changed. Okay, there's still Gnostic elements. It's still here in various forms. This idea of like a hidden knowledge or a secret knowledge. I, you know, I remember one of my friends years ago, he's always been pulled away to this, you know, there's this secret Bible code, or there's this secret in the scriptures, or this secret language in the Hebrew, and we got to, we got to, it was just this like, is Gnosticism, like this hidden knowledge that only the select few are privileged to learn about. Even if you think of the Passion Translation, I don't know if you've heard of that, some of you might use it, I'm about to uh, tear that apart, sorry. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> But the Passion uh, Translation, I mean, you want to talk about secret knowledge and hidden knowledge, I mean, it's just translated by one person, um, Brian Simmons. And, and he says, this is, I mean, I, I've watched the program, I've, I've listened to him talk. He says, Jesus Christ literally visited him in his room, breathed on him, and commissioned him to write a new translation of the Bible. Simmons says, it felt like heaven's wind, the rock, the breath, the wind of God came upon me, and he spoke to me and said, I'm commissioning you to translate the Bible into the translation project that I'm giving you to do. And he promised, and this is the most disturbing part, and he promised that he would give me, that he would help me, and he promised me that he would give me secrets of the Hebrew language. Gnosticism. He's, he, he's going to have an insight that no one else, no other translator has had. Gnosticism. He goes on. Jesus breathed on me so that I would do the project, and I felt, and, and it gets kind of weird here. Just listen to this. And I felt downloads coming instantly. I received downloads. It was like I got a chip put inside of me. I got a connection inside of me to hear him better, to understand the scriptures better, and hopefully to translate. I'm like, hopefully to translate? <laughs> well, that is what you're doing, supposedly. <clears throat> then, further on, he claims that Jesus revealed to him a new chapter of the Bible. This happened when he was translated to the Library of Heaven, where he saw more books than you can imagine. One stood out called John 22. How many books, or how many chapters are in the book of John? 21, right? So, John 22. It told about the greatest revival the world has yet to see. God promised Simmons that one day he'll bring Simmons back to heaven and give him this book. I'm sorry, that's just trash. I mean, it really is. If you're using that translation, you need to stop. Um, and if you ever see the comparison, and if you know anything about Greek or Hebrew, it's trash anyway, just the translation. Um, but even if someone's uh, translation philosophy is setting it up like that, that's not something you want to be reading or following. That's not the type of person or type of work that I want to support. Listen, that is a detraction from God. That insults the Holy Spirit. So we have, we have Gnosticism reimagined. We have this secret knowledge, the New Age even. 
is, is just elements of Gnosticism just repackaged in, in various forms. We have Gnosticism today where, you know, the physical is evil, the spirit is good. I mean, this is prevalent even in, in Christian churches, maybe even in some of your own minds, where the physical, it's like if I could just be rid of this body, all would be fine. Not because you're aching and moaning from your sufferings, but just the physical is evil. And believers, unfortunately, feed on this mentality. You, you do know you'll have a glorified body one day, right? You do understand that. So when we die and our earthly body is here, like when we're in heaven, that is just really a short time until Christ comes back and, and our bodies are resurrected. So the duration that we'll have a body is far longer than the time that we won't have a body. Does that make sense? Okay, because we're going to have a, 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 a resurrected body for all of eternity. Um, look just briefly at, at 1 Corinthians 15, just in case any of you have a question about this. First Corinthians 15, 35, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same. There is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. And there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. And then notice what he says. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Okay. So there's going to be uh, a one-to-one -one correspondence with the body you have and the body that's raised. That's otherwise, why would it raise if there's not? Okay. If you're just getting like a new body, just from just out of thin air, well then. There wouldn't be bodies raising from the, from the tombs. No, there's a one-to-one -one correspondence. Is it going to be a whole lot better? You better believe it. It's going to be a glorified body. We don't know too much about what that exactly means. But it, <clears throat> it's going to be amazing. And it's going to be beautiful. And it's going to be everything we just read here. The one, look at the, the descriptions used. One, weakness. The other, power. One, natural. The other, spiritual. Right? One perishable, the other imperishable. All of that. And guess what remains? Us, right? Us. God is good. So some of what had been creeping in was the Old Testament worship. Some of what had been creeping in was Old Testament um, syncretism. If you think about one of the things that the Israelites fell into over and over again into sin in regards to their sin was uh, basically taking the worship of Yahweh, and then bringing in extra things. 
So it's like they always, to some extent, would give some type of credence or allegiance or verbiage to Yahweh. I mean, they'd even go to the temple. I mean, they'd, you know, desecrate it and do horrible things there in, in Israel's history. Um, all sorts of immoral things. But, I mean, they'd still go to the temple. So you had this syncretism going on. So the Israelites had a worship of Yahweh. Sometimes it was true, sometimes it wasn't, but they added to it regularly. You'd have the shrines, the false altars, the false gods. Listen, they were trying to argue that pagan idols can be a part of worship and that it's not compromise. That's part of what you got going on here in Colossians. You can add all these other things. It's not compromise. You can worship the angels. That's not compromise. Yes, it is compromise. It's compromise. You start adding things to the worship of God, and it's no longer God who you're worshiping. Think about King uh, Rehoboam. Oh, let's just look at 1 Kings 12. You know who son King Rehoboam was? All right, one person knows. Solomon's son. 1 Kings 12. Solomon dies. Rehoboam is foolish. What does he do? He goes to his young counselor friends and he's like you know there's uncertainty in the kingdom what should i do how should i handle things and they're like just you know crack the whip basically and and the older counselors were like that's not the way to go that's not the wise move what is rehoboam doing his foolishness listens to the young foolish counselors so what happens the kingdom gets split who takes over the northern kingdom, Jeroboam. Well, what happens? Let's pick it up in 1 Kings 12, if you're there. Jeroboam takes over the northern kingdom and becomes king. <clears throat> the kingdom's been divided. Well, there's a small problem. What's the problem? Oh, well, um, the temple is in the southern kingdom now. And so Jeroboam doesn't want people going there to worship. Why? Oh, because they might actually be entreated to, you know, come back into one kingdom again, and he wouldn't want that because he's the king of the northern kingdom. So what does it say he does? Verse 26. Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods of Israel who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I mean, isn't it interesting how history repeats itself? I mean, you had to choose calves? Come on. Right? So, golden calves, this is what brought you out of the land of Israel, and what do the people do? They're foolish enough to buy into it. Oh, okay, I guess what's well, a shorter trip? You know, the calves are a lot closer than the temple, so we can save some money that way. And the king's telling us that's all good, and the priests are, are blessing it, so yeah, we can go along with it. No, that's compromise. It's compromise. So they wander away from God. They're arguing, what's the big deal? 
uh, Jeroboam's arguing, well, I'm just helping out their worship. No, selfish purposes. He's concerned about losing his own kingdom. So when you cause people to wander away from God, like that's not just a distraction, that's a detraction. It detracts. It hurts people. It can cause them to fall away. That happens, sadly, over and over again throughout the history of time. Andy Stanley, some of you heard of Charles Stanley. Andy Stanley, his son, he has a, a, a big megachurch and um, has written a number of books. Well, he recently had a conference, and this is, if you follow, have followed it, 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 ever, it didn't surprise a lot of people. It's just sad that it came to it. But he had a, a conference called the Unconditional Conference, and it was billed as a gathering uh, for parents of LGBTQ plus children and for ministry leaders looking to discover ways to support parents and LGBTQ plus children in their churches. Two of the keynote speakers were gay married men. The other speakers were all supportive of gay marriage. And here is the thing. And then he spent a couple sermons um, justifying his position. You can listen to them online. Um, and one of the things he was saying is, we're going to let practicing homosexuals into our church. Well, guess what? I- I'm okay with that. Because guess what? Sinners need to hear the gospel. They need to hear the gospel. So all sinners should be welcomed into the church. What people took issue with was that he said, not only are we going to let that happen, which I would hope churches would let all sorts of sinners into their midst, to hear the gospel, to preach to them, to call them to repentance. But then he went and said, we're also going to let them join the church. Some of them already have. We're going to let them join the church and be members of the church. And even though we might not agree with some of the things that we're doing, we're not going to correct them or call them out on it or practice any type of church discipline. If you want want an example of double-tonguedness, then go listen to his sermon. Because he will say, we don't agree with it and we know the Bible doesn't teach it but we're going to let it happen anyway, and we're okay with it. That's literally what he said. Double-tonguedness. You talk about someone who's just like a hireling and not a shepherd misleading the people because he is letting all those people think that their sin is okay and acceptable. Listen, when you join a church and you become a member there, the pastors and the rest of the congregation is saying, hey, we believe that you're a believer that you've been saved by the blood of of the Lamb, that you've trusted in Christ, that you've repented of your sins, that you're walking a lifestyle that is in accordance with the Scriptures. Well, guess what you do when you just let people that are in blatant rebellion and sin become members? You're giving them the clear notion that they're fine with God. And that's wrong. That's wrong. If you walk in open rebellion, if you walk in sin, if you're walking in a sinful lifestyle, the scriptures are clear that you have no place in the kingdom of God. That's not hate to say that. That's loving. What's hateful is to tell people they're going to heaven when they're going to hell. That's hateful. That's the most unloving thing you could possibly do when you think about it. You have people going to hell and you're just, you're holding their hand as they're on that path and patting them on the back and saying everything's okay. That's false teaching. It's a detraction. Andy Stanley needs to repent. It's wrong. It's sinful. 
Listen, there's rules and regulations. There's all sorts of things that can distract us from Christ, but also detract from Christ. And here's, here's the thing. Our challenge is that we can worship the rules or our theological constructions more than we worship Christ. I was talking uh, with, with a pastor this past week. I hadn't seen him for a little bit. Um, and he was um, sharing with me some different things. But one, I was sharing with him one of my frustrations was that <clears throat> what I see with some certain types of theological systems or beliefs is people really latch onto it and then it's almost like that becomes an idol in their life. And they're more focused on that system of belief than they are Christ himself. I even saw this at seminary. I'm sure it's, it's very easy for it to happen at, uh, at something like seminary because that's where you're learning about those different things. And so people become and are excited about those different systems uh, and beliefs. But it's like, if you're not careful, you can, you can put those things above Christ systems, beliefs. You know, we can end up focusing on, some people focus uh, way too much on biblical prophecy, you know, and every time um, a helicopter lands in, in Jerusalem or something like that, it, like, it means something. <clears throat> For some, you know, it's alcohol and dancing. Hopefully not at the same time, but usually. For others, it's their theological system. For some, it's their end-time theology. You know, we've had, uh, had at least one family leave here because they didn't well, they didn't even know what our end-time theology was, but they didn't agree that it, they knew it wasn't their end-time theology. Okay, that's fine. Listen, one of the things I like about Liberty, uh, Liberty Church, is that there is a, a freedom in beliefs of secondary and tertiary issues. And so we are Orthodox, and we actually subscribe to the creeds. Some churches don't. Why do we subscribe to the creeds? I mean, they're part of our handbook. They're on our website. Some people tell us they're shocked to find that on our website. You, should, you shouldn't be shocked. Like, the creeds have been around for like 2,000 years. So to subscribe to something that has been like considered part of the historic Christian faith really shouldn't be surprising. It's kind of sad that it is surprising to people. But why do we subscribe to them? We're showing people, hey, guess what? In, in, the, in the history of, of the Christian church and Christian belief and Christian orthodoxy, we're just like one church out of the hundreds of thousands and millions that have gone before us and that will come after us. Like, we are part of the Christian tradition. How can you make that statement more clearly than by subscribing to the creeds that the church has for the last 2,000 years? To me, it's a little disturbing when churches don't subscribe to the creeds. They just are coming up with their own creeds. But listen, you know, here you don't have to have a particular end-time uh, position uh, to join liberty. And secondary issues are not required for membership. Arminian, Calvinism, dispensational, covenantal, pre-mill, post-mill, mill And some of you are like, I don't know what half of those are. <laughs> the other half are like, I don't know what I am. <laughs> That's okay at this point. That's fine. You're still learning. You're still growing. So, one of the things, as we're slowly wrapping this up a little bit, is two questions I want you to be asking yourself is, when it comes to different things in your life,
that you're, you're doing or subscribing to, watching, believing, listening to, hearing, reading, all of those things. One, is it a distraction? Now, distractions aren't necessarily wrong in and of themselves. They can be good things. But pretty much anything can become a distraction. Anything. Any, even good, wholesome things can become distractions. So is it a distraction? Listen, if something distracts you from Christ, then, then at a minimum, it could, be, it could depend on what the distraction is, but usually you need to get rid of it. At a minimum, you need to lessen it, okay? And you say, well, what's the difference? Well, I mean, sometimes families can become, you can make a family an idol, and so obviously you can't get, don't get rid of your family, please, okay? So you need to put it in the proper, proper place. <clears throat> but if it distracts you from Christ, like there are certain things that we know that, that aren't things like the family, I mean, we just got to get rid of them. They're distracting us. They're pulling us away from Christ, so we get rid of them. There's other things that are detractions. They actually are hurting your relationship with Christ. It's taken away from it. It's not truth. It's mixed-in syncretism of some sort. It might be sins that you're doing, but whatever those things are, that's the second thing. Like, it's something detracting from Christ. That, that's even, a, it's a separate category, even worse, I would say. But if it's detracting, then it absolutely has to go. You got to get rid of it. Because think about, the, the whole point here that Paul is driving at is we're not required to submit to additional rules and regulations in order to experience God's presence. That's, that's what he's saying. Why? Because of everything he's already said, you have the fulfillment in Christ. Because Christ is the deity filled, he's the walking God, then guess what? He has the fulfillment, then he, we can be fulfilled in him. And we don't have to go through um, rituals. We don't have to go through practices. We don't have to uh, practice an, uh, ex extreme forms of asceticism. We don't have to do those things to get close to God. Okay. Now, you're as close to God as you're ever going to be. Also, your enjoyment of your closeness to God can be a greater degree or lesser degree. That's the important qualification. But if you are a believer, like, you, if you've been bought by Jesus' precious blood, you really can't get any closer. And I understand we sometimes talk about that and, like, I need to get closer to God. That's true. We're talking about growth and sanctification and different things. So there's the, almost like the justification idea. You're as close as you, as you can possibly get to God. You've been justified. You're right there. God sees you and declares you innocent. You're there. You're in heaven. There's the aspect also of sanctification. He's making us more like him. Okay? He's, he's doing a work inside of us. And so that helps. As we become more like Christ, we're going to enjoy our relationship with him more. As we become more sanctified, as he's wiping away sin and dealing with it in our life, as we're making tough sacrifices and getting rid of distractions and detractions, that helps us for the enjoyment of our relationship that we already have. It helps us to see the presence that much more clearly. Yeah, those things can pull you away, completely pull you down, and it's like a veil is in front of you. Those, those things that are distractions and detractions, it's like the veil. So, I mean, Christ is still there, but you just can't see it. You can't see him. There's distractions. There's a veil there. So you're wanting to remove that veil so you can see clearly. Only faith in Christ brings us into God's holy presence. Listen, you've already been judged for your sin You've already been judged. And because of Christ, you've been found innocent. 
He's been found guilty so that you could be found innocent. And because God has done that in Christ and given us great riches and done all these amazing things, listen, you don't need additional hoops to jump through. There's no works to do to get closer to God. There's no prayer to say when you're on your deathbed so that you make sure you go to heaven and, and don't go to purgatory or hell. No, you don't need any of that. If you have Christ, you have Christ. So you don't need additional rules and regulations to draw you closer to God. Now, you are called to become more like him, and as you do that, you'll have a more enjoyment of the closeness that you have with God. You need nothing else besides Christ. Nothing else. Nothing else besides Christ and his forgiving work to be close to God. Listen. You have everything you need in Christ. So be filled in him. The world can try and take that place and it's going to fail. And your flesh can try and take that place and, and it's going to fail. And external rules and regulations can try and they're going to fail. So be fulfilled in Christ. You have everything you need in Christ. Go to Christ, the fountain of living water. All right? each, each one of us, like we have a thirst. And, and guess what? Only that thirst can be satisfied by Jesus himself. So you're sipping on distractions and detractions. Yeah, it's not going to fulfill you. It's not going to fulfill you. It's like empty calories. It's not going to fulfill you. No, you need the substance. Not the shadows. Not the detractions. Not the distractions. You need the substance. And the substance is Christ. You have the substance. You have everything you need. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that, that you are the substance and that we need no other. That you tabernacled, the word became flesh. You tabernacled with us. You dwelt with us. And we thank you that you are gracious to point out distractions and detractions and so I pray you do that now. And whatever is holding us back, whatever is dragging us down, whatever is hindering us, that we would push it aside, we'd get rid of it. Lord, we want to know you, and we want to know you more. We want to become more like you. And so we pray that you continue by your spirit to, to do your sanctifying work in us. It's not always pleasant, Lord, but, but do it for your glory and for your name's sake. And, and bring up the dross to the surface and then skim it away, Lord, and let the pure remain. And we ask you would do this for your glory. Amen.